So far, the first chapter of Ephesians has taught us the very truth we just sang. We love him because he first loved us. John would also write the same thing. I'll have you turn back there to Ephesians, Ephesians this time chapter 2. Took us several weeks to make it through the first chapter. I suspect it will take us several to make it through the second chapter as well. When you look at the first verse of this second chapter, you're going to immediately recognize that we've come to a monumental place in the scriptures. This is a landmark. Any doctrine concerning sin and salvation, really any theology that one would hold to, this first verse of Ephesians 2 has to be dealt with. This is not one that you can conveniently skip over and still, in the end, prove yourself to be biblical. And it's not found alone here. Colossians, very much the parallel of Ephesians. Verse 13 of the second chapter says very much the same as what we're going to read here. In Colossians, Paul wrote, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses. This first verse of the second chapter represents what we could call, I think rightly, and I hope you'll understand this the way that I'm trying to portray it, as the valley of death. The valley of spiritual death. And it's in this valley where the Christian sees the grace and mercy of God shining most brilliantly when we recognize what we were who we were and what we were not prior to christ's coming once we realize and know to be true how desperate our condition is before god before salvation then the things that we read about christ's coming the things that we read about not only his coming to earth, but actually what he accomplished here becomes all the more glorious and wondrous. We are, in every sense, exactly what Paul says, only redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. These verses say in short order what the entirety of the scriptures teach concerning the natural state of humanity. We're going to look at that in more detail as we go along this morning. When we take the first paragraph of this second chapter together as a whole, some would say the first seven, sentence, the first seven verses are one long sentence in its original language, and that's true, but some would expand that to the first ten verses, depending on how you punctuate things. And when we take them all together... What's being taught us here is the vivid contrast between what man is by nature and what he can become by grace. Those are John Stott's words. And the contrast is great. What we see of man in his original nature after the fall of Adam and what he can be post-salvation after the grace of God has awakened him, these two things could not be standing in more stark contrast. Dead in sin, alive in Christ. 
the deadness and the blackness of sin and the light of life that is to be found in Christ and in He alone. I don't know of any two things in this world that are more opposite than the things these first ten verses of Ephesians 2 deal with. One paints a very bleak picture, and by the end of the tenth chapter, we're told that the saved or those that have known the grace of God are now the workmanship of God in Christ. So the soul is moved from verse 1 to chapter 10 from the, the, the realm or the kingdom of darkness and translated or conveyed over into the kingdom of the Son of His love. But all that we can do this morning, all that I can do this morning is just look at this first verse. And you might see there's just a few words here and that's true, but these few words are full, full of truth, full of truth that we must, by the help and grace of God, digest unto the glory of God. So let's read them, just the first verse. I'm reading from the New King James. That's going to be important. I'll tell you why in just a moment. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Let's pray. Father, I pray and trust that you will take this truth inspired of your spirit, written by the Apostle Paul, that you have preserved that is applicable to both the Ephesian believers and all believers here in this room and is a, is a description of our nature prior to salvation. Lord, reality would teach us and the scriptures would teach us that there are those here this morning dead in sin, even though their bodies are very much alive. We pray it would please you to quicken them. We pray it would please you to give them life. We pray it would please you to raise them from the dead. Let them see the beauties of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though now they may not desire it at all and cannot. Lord, I pray through the preaching of your word, through the witness and testimony of your spirit, that you would do the miraculous among us. Many of us have experienced that miracle-working power of yours in resurrecting us from the spiritual dead. And Lord, with humble gratitude and even with expectancy, we ask you to do it again for those that we know and love. Do it again for our lost family members, for our children, for our parents, whomever it may be. Whoever stands in need of Christ, I pray you will meet that need here in this place this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So verse 1 reads very easily and simply, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. But as I've already said, it's absolutely foundational to any Christian theology, to any real doctrine. Let me first, before we look at the individual words and put them together, remind you of the context in which this verse comes to us. And to do that, I want to take you back to verse, verses 18 through 20. 
And really, we're jumping right back into the middle of Paul's prayer for these newly converted Ephesians. And he asks that the Lord would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And stop reading right there. If you were to open a parenthesis there and not close that parenthesis until the end of the chapter, I think the, the real meaning and force of the first verse would come. And I'm going to read it to you that way. Just go back to verse 20. Speaking of the exceeding greatness of the power toward us who believe, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and in us who were dead in trespasses and sins. Here's the correlation that is made. In that parenthesis, the rest of chapter, verse 20, all the way through the end, it's as if Paul's mind gets so enraptured with the glories of Jesus Christ that he just can't help but go and detail and describe what it means for him to be seated in the heavenly places, what it means to be that all things have been put under his feet, and what it means that he has been given to the church as its head. But now he gets back to his point. His point being the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is what is necessary and what has proven to be operative in the lives of those who are believers. He raised Christ from the dead. He raises people from the dead. And this is not a physical death that is in view here in verse 1. So after this excursus concerning Christ's universal lordship and his headship over all things to the church, we're brought immediately back to the working of the exceeding great power of God operative in us. Jesus was dead. He was buried as proof and evidence of it. But God raised and exalted him. You and I, having been related to Adam, Adam having been our first head, are dead in sin and trespasses. And if we are to be raised, it will be according to the working of God's great power. So really, we've been recipients of two things. If you're saved, you have been recipients of at least two things, and you can open these two things in myriads of different ways. First, we have been recipients of the power of God operative in our life. You don't have to look at the mountains. You don't have to look at the sunrise. As glorious and great as those things are, just consider who you were before and now who you are after Christ has come and what you have witnessed there again as you've contemplated it is the greatest of miracles. So we've been a recipient of the power, but also the great mercy. What was it in us that caused him to raise us from the dead? But Paul has gone to great lengths in chapter 1 to tell us that it's according to his good pleasure. That there was nothing in us. We just sang, it's not what my hands have done. It's not what I have done that has secured salvation for me. It's all about what Christ has done. He loved me, therefore I love him. And I told you that the reading of the New King James was important. Those of you who read either the English Standard Version 
or the New American Standard Version do not have the italicized words in verse 1 of he made alive. The New American Standard simply reads, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The English Standard Version reads very similarly, just changing one word, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So what gave the right, so to speak, of the translators of the King James Version and then those with the New King James Version to insert these words? Well, we haven't read it yet, but if you'll skip over to the fifth verse. Verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That is a description of the operative power of God in our lives. So the main verb, the verb that shines throughout all ten verses here, is that verb, He made us alive together. And so the King James translators and those who are Responsible for the New King James, they import the force or the sense of that verb back into the first verse so that it reads correctly in, in English. I'm not saying that the New American Standard or English Standard Version don't read correctly, but I'm just trying to say that's why it's there. It's there for a reason. We need not get worried that it's in one and not the other. Here's an important note before we move on. This verse describes all of humanity prior to salvation. Some deal with these verses by saying, no, this is just a description of Gentile believers before Paul writes these things to them. And in fact, if you go on in the second chapter, there's great things said about the Gentiles, about their being without God in the world, with no hope, strangers from the covenants of promises and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Those things do apply only to the Gentiles. Paul asked the question, what advantage then does the Jew have in Romans? And how does he answer the question? Much in every way. God gave them his word. They had his law. They had as much as they could know about him at that point in time. And so some take that thought and they bring it back to verse 1 and say, this is just a description of the Gentiles. But can I remind you of something? And if you have your Bible open, just look at this with me in Romans chapter 3 and look at verse 9. Paul asks the question. He says, what then? Are we better than they? And what he's asking there, is the Jew better than the Gentile? Not at all, he says. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles that they are all under sin. It is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They all have sinned. They have together become unprofitable. So all of humanity is lumped into one group by Paul in Romans 3. And we're right to understand it that way here in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, nor does this refer to those, or, nor is it confined to those who were simply alive in Paul's day. 
Some think that's what it means. If you go back to Romans 5, verse 12, let's dismantle that argument as well. Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. So the analogy of Scripture, or the totality of Scripture, teaches us that this description by Paul of man in his natural state applies to all of humanity. Not just the Gentile, not just those who are alive at this writing, but all are confined under sin. What does Paul say about us? What does Paul say about the Ephesian believers prior to their conversion? What does he say to anyone present here today that has not yet believed in Christ? Well, he says, you are dead. What does he mean? The word that is used here, nekros in the Greek, refers to a deceased lifeless, inanimate corpse. Jesus used this word often in his teaching, in his parables. He used it to refer to physically dead people. He didn't use it figuratively. Now, if you're a good student of the scriptures, you'll point to the parable of the prodigal son. And the father said, this my son was dead. But even there, if we deal honestly with what the Scripture says, we know that that's used in a figurative sense. This word that Paul uses here, 99% of the time, refers to a deceased, lifeless, inanimate corpse. This is the basis, this truth in this verse is the basis why Jesus could look Nicodemus in the eye the highly religious and skilled Pharisee. This is why the truth here in this verse is why Jesus could look sincerely at Nicodemus in the eye and say to him, you must be born again. Even you. With all of your religion, with all of your learning, with all of the things that you know, you are able to dot the I and cross the T of the letter of the law, but you must be born again. This is the reason for gospel preaching. The scripture tells us, Paul tells us, that preaching is foolishness. The act of preaching, what's taking place right now, seems to be foolish. I mean, this this is something that probably you will not experience in any other form in the rest of your week. Someone standing before you, addressing you in this way for any length of time. This is something unique to Christianity. The preaching of God's word is unique, but this is the reason, the truth that is found in this first verse is the reason, because we are told that it is the preaching of the gospel, the gospel itself being the very power of God unto salvation. And isn't that the context in which we find this verse? Paul says, I want the Lord to make you aware of that you would know the exceeding greatness of his what? Of his power that is operative in you. How does that come? It's mysterious, yes, but as the gospel is 
observed, as it is preached, as it is studied, as it is read about, as the Gospels themselves are read, and as Jesus makes himself known, it seems to be, indeed it is, the very thing that the Lord uses to awaken the spiritual dead to life. And then we can take Jesus' words to Nicodemus and make them a broad application. Not only must the self-righteous Pharisee, surely of him than everybody else, but notice what Jesus said to him, you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of God. You must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of God. So I think it's right of us to equate spiritual deadness with physical deadness by the wording of this verse. And at some point in this sermon, I've got to work in a Charles Spurgeon quote, so I'm going to go ahead and do it now. It's kind of lengthy, but stay with me. Spurgeon is here responding to those that say man inherently has the power in himself to hear, receive, and believe. Those who would say that natural man, even though the scriptures clearly say that the natural man cannot discern the things of God, he cannot understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned, even though the scriptures say things like this here about the spiritual condition of men, mankind, there are those who would say, well, man retains this inherent ability to believe, receive, and hear without some operation of God upon him. Here's what Spurgeon said. Scripture tells us that man by nature is dead in trespasses and sins. It does not say that he is sick or that he is faint or that he has grown callous or hardened or seared. It says that he is dead. When the body is dead, it is powerless. It is unable to do anything of itself And when the soul of man is dead in a spiritual sense, it must be, if there is any meaning in the figure, utterly and entirely powerless and unable to do anything of itself or for itself. And I like what he calls attention to. Why would Paul even bring this up? Why would he use the imagery? If he's not meaning us to take it at face value, why does he say the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that raises you from the dead? But Spurgeon goes on and he says, when you see dead men raising themselves from their graves, when you see them unwinding their own grave cloths, when you see them opening the lids of their coffins and walking down our streets alive and adamant as a result of their own power, then perhaps you may believe that souls in sin and the deadness of sin may turn to God, recreate their own natures, and make themselves heirs of heaven. And he closes that by saying, but not until then. Until you see that, dead men raising themselves, themselves to life, don't think that the spiritually dead can come to faith in Christ without first the operative power at work in them as well. The imagery here is not, as I heard so often growing up as a kid, giving aid to a drowning man, one who is is fighting hard, keeping his head above water. 
The imagery here is more closely associated with the one who has drowned, being found on the floor of the sea, being raised up and given life. That's the imagery that's in play. Some would say, and rightly so, that if something is dead, then it must have first been alive. That's logical. There's no problem with that. Because the soul was alive first in Adam. But in Adam and his sin, all died. What Paul writes about in this first verse, the two words that he uses are the results of our deadness. He calls them trespasses and sins. We're going to look at them a little more closely later. But just know that we sin because we're sinners. It's not our sinning that makes us sinners. There's a great difference. We sin because we are sinners by nature. We have inherited that from Adam. We read Romans chapter 5, and Adam all died. The reason that you and I sin is because we are inherently sinners because of our relationship to Adam. And then, oh, by the way, given time and opportunity, what will we do? We will sin. And so really, though the scriptures don't necessarily divide them in this way, we are guilty before God on two counts. Number one, because of our relationship to Adam. Number two, because we actually commit sin. The scripture just seems to lump all of that together. One of the biggest pushbacks against this doctrine of spiritual deadness, absolute spiritual deadness, is this. What about good people? What about good, moral, upstanding, honest people? There are those. There are many of them. And they have received a super abundance of common grace that makes them moral. The law of God has been written upon their heart. They have a conscience. They know inherently right from wrong. They have not yet made the great exchange of the truth of God for the lie. And so it's a very real thing when we consider good, moral, upstanding people. But know this, the scripture confines all under sin. Good, moral, upstanding people who are outside of Christ will die in their sins. This is what John Stott says, and he says it so beautifully, I want to read what he said. Such people... He's talking about good and moral people. Such people are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and they are deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of His personal reality, no leaping of the Spirit toward Him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with Him, no longing for the fellowship of His people. They are unresponsive to Him, spiritually as unresponsive to Him as a corpse. You can't negate their goodness. You can't negate their morality. But that says nothing to their relationship to a holy God. Someone that I'm not familiar with, George Mayer, 
said something similar. He said, spiritual death is the one by which a person lives according to his bodily desires and prospers in strength, wealth, honor, power. Yet, in the sight of God, he is dead. So look at the twofold description that Paul gives to this spiritual deadness. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Both words closely related, both pointing to sin itself, but with just a little different meaning. The word trespass speaks to the crossing of a known boundary. You see something clearly marked and says, do not trespass, don't cross this line, and yet there is a willful crossing of the line. Isn't that what Adam did in Eden, in the garden? He trespassed. God says, don't. Adam did. The sign was clearly displayed, do not trespass, and yet he crossed the fence anyway. Someone has described this word trespass as a walking out on God, living with no heart regard for his graciously defined boundaries. And let me just speak to that very quickly. Some would say, I want nothing to do with all of these rules of Christianity, all of the rules of God saying, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. May the Lord give you grace enough to see that all of those boundaries All of those things that you see as hindrances are little precursors of His grace. Those are are small ways that even His common grace can become very much alive to you. And you can live, just like this person described, dead in sin but yet prospering in strength, wealth, honor, and power, and might. And yet, unto the things of God, you're totally dead unto them. But then there's the second word that Paul uses, not just trespasses, but sins. And you've probably often heard the, the word defined as the missing of the mark. And the image comes to your mind, right, of, of a child. I remember my boys very often, you know, they would have bow, bow and arrows and They would be lying all over my yard and I have to pick them up before I could mow, but that's beside the point. They would try to pull back and hit the mark of the target and sometimes they would get close. And even myself, I could apply it to myself. I've never been much of a marksman with the bow and arrow. It seems like always missing the target. Sometimes you might get get very close. But that's the way to think of sin. We have shot at the target of God's righteousness in perfection, and we've missed it, and we will miss it every single time. Our righteousness is nothing before God but filthy rags. So when you take both of these words together, I love these. I don't know if this is original to John Stott or not. I read several different things where he is quoted, so this may very well be original to him. He says here, this proves that we are both rebels and failures before God. God says, don't, we rebel, and we do. God says, here's the mark, and we fail to hit it every single time. We are rebels and failures against the goodness of God. 
how greatly were we in need of the exceeding greatness of his power, that same power that raised Christ from the dead, how greatly in need were we that he would come and work that same power in us, raising us from the spiritual dead. Have you ever wondered things like this? I don't think this is unique to me. Why do we read about things like we do in Romans chapter 1? If you go to Romans chapter 1, God displayed before everybody, even those in Romans chapter 1, his creation. They knew certain things about him. But there is a, 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 a grading downward of the things that people just continually put off, put off, rebelled against, and held under, suppressing the truth. You know why we get to the end of Romans chapter 1 and God finally just turns them over? He says, enough. You go be you. You know, the reason there is not attributed to a lack of education. It's not attributed to the lack of government. We don't need more government. We don't need more education. The reason is not attributed to intelligence or lack of intelligence. The reason that there are a people who know so many things according to common grace about God and yet reject it all is because they are dead in sin. Educate them all you want. Govern them all you want. It's not going to matter. That's why the idea that the lost world has of some future utopian society that's going to be ushered in by the brilliance of man is never going to happen. Why is that? Deadness and sin. Why is there no hope in the world apart from Christ? Because of deadness and sin. Why was Christ humbled in the first place? Why did he not consider it equal, a robbery to be equal with God, setting aside the glory that he had known from all eternity past, setting it aside for a moment? Why was that necessary? Because of the deadness of men and sin. What about the exaltation of Jesus Christ? They're raising him from the dead, giving signal that he has triumphed over, over the grave and sin and Satan himself. Why was that necessary? Again, the answer can only be because of the deadness of men in their sins. All of this was necessary. Not one thing that Christ has done for us could be left out. All of it was necessary because of the deadness of of sin. Do you sense this deadness even while you live? Is the Spirit of God coming alongside of you? Is he regener- is, has He regenerated you so that you can see that yes, once I was very blind, very blind, but now I see. Once I had no feelings for the things of God. Once I could read the scriptures and it was like a dead book to me. I had no appetite for it. I had no appetite for his church. Please hear me. If those are your senses, if those are the things that you are feeling, do not be deceived. People that have been made alive in Christ 
Though, yes, we still continue to wrestle against sin, there is some yearning after spiritual things in the depth of your soul. Where the Spirit of Christ is, He bears witness that you are indeed a son or the daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need, you need, I need a mighty working of God upon us. The breath of His Spirit must breathe upon the dryness of our deadness and give us life. You remember Ezekiel's Valley of Bones in the 37th chapter, right? He looked at them and saw, they're not just dead, they're really dead. They're dry. Even all of the the, the sinews and all the things were gone. It's just a pile of bones. I think that's the picture that Paul is painting of humanity apart from Christ, outside of Christ, as a result of having fallen in Adam. We need that same Spirit of God to come along and breathe upon us. The same spirit that breathed into Adam's nostrils and made him a living being. This is what we need. This is what your children need. Pray this for them. You can't coerce them into heaven. They may respond to certain questions. They may submit themselves to whatever you want them to do. But ultimately, if the Lord doesn't raise them from the dead, it's all in vain. So what is the greatest act of parenting that you and I can do? Not leaving the other things undone. But what is the greatest act of parenting that we can do? Plead with God. Please save my children. Plead with God. Please save my spouse. Please save my parents my co-workers, the stranger that I meet on the street that is living out his deadness, that's evidenced all over him, not just in his external appearance, but the way that he lives and the way that he speaks, the, the tongue itself being the bucket that goes down into the heart and draws out what's there, right? We need this power of God to come upon them. There is no salvation apart from this exceeding great working of his mighty power. And please let us not be of the sort that give ourselves too much credit. According to what Paul describes here, what credit could you take into yourself anyway? All glory to God. All glory to God. That's why we give ourselves to gospel preaching. That's why we give ourselves to making sure that every person alive, Lord willing, will hear the message of Jesus Christ. You and I cannot awaken them from the spiritual death, but we can hold them under the fountain of grace until they drown in it. By telling them over and over and over again, this is what Christ has done. This is what he's done. This is your condition before him, but this is what he's done. This is the remedy. Will you come to him? We're not of the sort that believe in some cold fatalism. We're not of the sort that say what God is going to do, he's going to do regardless of what we do. 
we understand we have responsibility. The Christian's responsibility is to preach the gospel, go to the ends of the earth, bleed, sweat, die if necessary, to take the message of the gospel to those who are in need. And the responsibility of the unbeliever is to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, repent of your sins, and cling to Christ. Come to him. We're told in the scriptures that you need nothing to come. What did we sing earlier? Nothing in my hands I bring. So any teaching or doctrine or theology that says you must first clean yourself up externally or internally, that you must have the right kind of things, you must get things in order before you come to Christ, we immediately throw those things out the window because the scripture says come and buy with no money. Isn't that language strange in our ears? Come and buy with no money. Come and take of the life-giving stream of the gospel. I'm looking for a hymnal. I don't see one. I wanted to read something. This is probably not the right one. It's not. I'm going to work from memory. I came to Jesus, that song that we sang earlier. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and live. Will you stoop down and drink and live? Will you humble yourself and come to him in that way? I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. He delights in you coming in that way. He doesn't receive Nicodemuses. He receives women caught in adultery. He doesn't receive Saul of Tarsus. He receives men and women who come to him bearing the marks and the wear of sin up on them. He eats and dines with them. He loves them. Can I just be really simple as I can be? If you're here this morning and you're not believing in Christ, your heart is is cold to Christ, your heart is dead to Christ, Would you just say something like this? Just pray. Admit. I have no sense of anything regarding Christ. He knows this already. You're not revealing anything to him. And just ask. Would you make me alive? To the things of Jesus Christ? Would you invade my dead space and give me life? Would you make me feel my need of you? You see, this is the day of salvation. This is the day of grace. 
please don't be so obstinate and headstrong that you will come to your dying hour and everything depend on you. It will end badly for you. The pride of man, the pride of woman, is one of the, if not the, primary tools and tactics of Satan. How often have you heard people say foolish, absolutely foolish things like, when the time of reckoning comes, I can handle myself. You ever heard somebody say that? Don't you just pity people like that? They have no idea. And they're just speaking out of the deadness of their heart. You must have someone intercede for you. And that someone is Jesus Christ. Will you not come to Him? I'm going to close with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached, which you received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day. I pray and trust that that's the best news that you've ever heard. If it is, give glory to God, because He has dug out your ear and allowed you to hear it. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you are a God of mercy. That you are a God that raises the spiritually dead. Lord, I don't pretend, nor do I think anyone here would, or presume upon you to know everything about this working. We cast ourselves at your mercy. We appeal to your grace. Where our thoughts are in error, we submit them to you and pray that you would bring real conviction of that error. Lord, we pray for those that sit here this morning very much physically alive. Their hearts are beating. Their lungs are taking in and exhaling air. Their minds are racing with thoughts. Their minds are, are cemented upon the joys that this world has to offer. But even while all of that is taking place, they are dead to the things of God. So we borrow Paul's words here and we pray that you would make them know the exceeding greatness of the power toward them. And those who are believers here, how can we not be humbled? How can we not be driven to our knees with gratitude and thanksgiving? You did not respond to our request. Oh God, you put the request in our heart. Come and save, Lord. Gird your sword upon your thigh. Ride mightily and prosperously because of truth. Come even now and do it, we pray. 
We ask it in Christ's name. We ask it for His glory and for His sake. Amen.